Good morning. Welcome to all our guests, visitors, and radio listeners today. What a beautiful Sunday morning it is. Thank you this morning and welcome to Jane Shoemaker, who joins Kay today at the piano. Today begins the Elgoyce County Fair, and we encourage you to go out and visit our youth who have projects and animals out there this week. Also, I think in the bulletin there's a list of the uh, gospel tent uh, activities this week. If you want to hear some good music, it's always a good time. Another one of our missions that our church has uh, supported. On August 11th, from 5 to 7 p.m., we have reserved the New Bremen Outdoor Pool for an all-church pool party. It's not just for the youth. This is for everyone. Guests are welcome to bring your whole family, your grandchildren, or even a friend. Now it asks for all those that are able to call me and uh, call, to join me in standing and for the call to worship. The call to worship is taken from the book of Revelations, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom, thanks and honor, and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them, nor any scorching heat. The Lamb at the center of the throne will give their shelter. He will lead them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Let's continue to stand and sing our opening hymn, number 26, A Mighty Fortress is Our God.
Now, as we invite the children forward for children's chat, please greet your neighbors. Good morning. How are you this morning? Good. Have you ever made paper planes? You have. It's fun, isn't it? Well, I have a sheet of paper here, and we're going to talk about a couple boys that were making t- paper planes. And one's name was Timmy, and the other one's name was Billy. And so Timmy was going to show Billy how to build a plane. So he took the one corner and folded it over. He took the other corner and folded it over. And what does it look like now? What's it kind of look like? A house. A house. So Billy, he's really interested in this, and he wants to learn everything he can about the plane. So Timmy folds it over again, and does it look like a plane yet? Nope. Nope. We've got to put wings on there, don't we, huh? So we're going to put wings on there. Now does it look like a plane? Huh? Kind of a chunky little plane, isn't it? Well, Billy said, you know, Timmy, I think that plane can take us to heaven. You think so? No. (gasps) Whoa. No, he didn't get very far, did he? And uh, Timmy said, well, you know, Billy, I heard in Sunday school that you get to heaven only one way. And Billy says, well, you know where the other place is, don't you? And Timmy says, yes, but despite how good you are, there's only one way to get to heaven. So they kept making planes and thinking about that. And so Timmy made another plane. And this time he cut it like this up. And so it looked like what? A jet or a rocket. And Billy says, oh, that's how we can get to heaven. Is on a rocket. Is that how you get to heaven? Nope. Nope. It's not. So Billy's kind of confused. He says, well, if we can't, if we can't fly in a plane to heaven and we can't take a jet to heaven, how do we get to heaven? And Timmy says, by believing in Jesus, and he pushed his jet out, and what did it make? A cross. cross. That's right. And that's how we get to heaven, is believing in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these children, and help us all remember that despite all the good deeds we may do, it is believing in you that takes us to heaven to be with you eternally. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Killed in Afghanistan in this week, one of our coalition partners, Assemblyman Josip Briski from Seveste, Croatia. Lost in our service at Fort Pickett, Virginia, Chief Warrant Officer, 2nd Class, Kevin P. Sullivan, 34, from Chinsanning, Michigan. Lost at sea 
aviation electronics technician second class Slayton Richard Saldana, 24, from Manassas, Virginia. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning and ask for God's comfort and peace to be with those families represented by the names that Jay just read for us, as well as asking for God's provision and peace for us as we face life's challenges here as well. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that we can come to you in prayer, that you give us, Lord, this privilege. You invite us to come and, and lay our burdens at your feet. Uh, Jesus, you promised that, that we can come to you and we can cast our burdens down and take up your yoke, which is easy, because your burden is light, and we'll find rest for our souls. Lord God, we, we come to you and ask for your rest, your peace, your comfort to be with the families that are represented, um, Lord, this week and each week as we remember those who have given themselves for us in defense of our country and in defense of our freedom. We ask that you would uh, uh, bless those families, that your spirit be present in a real and tangible way, and that they may find comfort, Lord, in you and in the promises of your word. I also ask, Lord, for your presence to be with us in this place. We all carry our own burdens with us, Lord. Uh, some that are, are visible and obvious, and some, Lord, that are internal, that we, we carry only by ourselves. Uh, and, Lord, we, we come in, in the full knowledge that, that you ask us to find our, our hope and find our rest in you. And so, Lord, whatever that burden may be, whether it's a physical illness, whether it's financial trouble or um, some other sort of uh, uh, imperceivable issue, Lord, uh, we ask for your, your peace, your will to reign in our lives. We ask especially this week that you be with those who are participating in Auglaise County Fair. We ask, uh, we thank you for the, the blessing that is to families, to, to the teens and children who will be participating in different projects, as well as all those that are just going to be there for the fun and the fellowship, Lord. We ask for safety, uh, for good times, and Lord, uh, thank you and, and pray, Lord, that you bring a sense of community uh, through this fair. We ask all these things in the name of Christ who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Jesus himself is our solid rock, and it's on him that we can stand uh, assured of, of his promises. Let's stand together, if you're able, and sing number 404, The Solid Rock.
may be seated. I invite those who are helping with the offering to come forward at this time. Our offering this morning goes to support the those in need fund here at the church, which is a way for us as a church to bless those in our community who find themselves in times of need. Thank you.
If you're able, please remain standing for the scripture reading this morning. The reading this morning is from Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadths of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the burning lake of sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from their presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Thank you. You may be seated. Lord God, we ask you that you'd be with us this day. Um, thank you for, Lord, this time of worship where we can set aside uh, time this morning, this week, to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I thank you, Lord, that, that our, uh, our time of worship, Lord, is, is, is a reminder of, of the importance of setting our sights on you. And we pray that especially, uh, and that is especially true as we open your word together. Help us to see this from your perspective, Lord. Help us to dig into the truth of your word. And may your spirit guide us as we look at these things. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, C.S. Lewis includes this in his preface. It says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. 
As we, as we take time today and address some of these tough questions that are surrounding the issue of, of the devil and hell and judgment, uh, let's keep that perspective in mind. Um, let's remember that, that as we talk about these things, it is important to look at them from a biblical perspective. What does God's word have to say about these issues? Um, just as we've been trying to do all summer long, but, but in this case in particular, I, I feel like it's very important because it can be easy to get sidetracked and go down a rabbit hole in a direction that maybe isn't really a value or of, import, of importance to us. But at the same time, it's important to acknowledge the reality of what God says to be true in his word, the, the existence of an enemy, the existence of a, a, a force in this world, in this universe that is seeking the destruction of God's people. Uh, to ignore that, to pretend it doesn't exist, is also a danger and, uh, and, and not, um, not a healthy perspective for Christians or a church to have. Uh, and so, and so it's important for us today as we open up God's word together to keep in mind the, um, that perspective that C.S. Lewis shared in his book, to remember, uh, to acknowledge the existence of an enemy, to acknowledge the, the reality of the things that we're talking about today, but yet also uh, keep it in, in light of God's grace. Uh, that, is, that is what I want to encourage us to do today. Is, is to hold up these topics, hold up these questions against the backdrop of God's grace and his goodness. I think that is the most important thing for us to do this morning. As we talk about the devil, as we talk about uh, all of the kind of, as, as much of the detail around that as we're going to talk about today, let's do so in light of God's grace and his mercy and his presence. Uh, the devil is not... All-powerful. We'll be talking about that. The devil is not uh, on equal footing with God. And so we must rest our hope and our promises in God's word and, and who God says he is and not get lost uh, in, in despair or hopelessness as we talk about these things. So that's my encouragement for us today, to, to focus in on these things, to, to get a biblical and sound perspective but in all things rested against the backdrop of God's grace and his mercy. And so we're going to be taking, I just want to give you kind of a, an idea of where we're heading this morning. There is a lot to cover. A lot of your questions, as I said, had to do with the book of Revelation. Um, and a lot of them had to do with, with the enemy in particular. And so we're going to try to touch on several different things this morning uh, with the time that we have. And so, first of all, my apologies if I don't answer all of your questions, because, of course, I'm not going to be able to. Um, I'm going to try to cover uh, as many or as, as, as broad of a a, a, a topic as I can this morning, uh, but know also that if I say something that piques another question in your mind, if, if, I, if you had something in your mind and I didn't quite address it the way that maybe you thought I would or, or want me to, feel free to, to respond. Come and talk to me. I'd love to, to discuss because there is more, of course, here in, this, uh, in the book of Revelation and in this topic in particular than we can fit into a sermon. And so um, I will do my best to kind of kind of cover some of these things, but feel free to always follow up. I think that would be a, a this sermon in particular uh, may be important for us to do. And so I'm going to begin this morning by looking at some uh, quick questions, some quick hits about this chapter in particular about uh, about the enemy. Uh, and then we're going to look at him in more detail, uh, particularly his his tactics, his schemes and how we can respond to that as Christ followers. And then we'll end uh, looking at the idea of hell and judgment. And so that's the, the path we're going to be going on today. And I encourage you to follow along as best as you are able. 
Uh, first of all, I want to reference this Revelation chapter 20 talks about the idea of the millennium, uh, this thousand year period, or as this chapter puts it, a thousand year period where Christ reigns and the, the enemy, in a sense, is restrained. Uh, I want to start off by saying this chapter is the only reference in all of Scripture to this idea of, of a millennium kingdom or a time period such as this. And so as we will talk about it this morning, let's keep in mind that, that this is only one portion of Scripture, uh, and it's important to keep this in the context of Scripture as a whole. I found as we study God's Word, uh, if, if, God, if, if, if something is mentioned once in Scripture, it's, it's important. If something is mentioned several times, it's, you, you see, it's, it's even more important. If something is mentioned over and over and over again, it's of utmost importance. And so, uh, you know, think of the New Testament and, the, and, and really the Scripture as a whole, and the emphasis on God's grace and His mercy is mentioned repeatedly over and over and over again. You could probably take a look at any of the 66 books we have in our Bible and find a strain, a theme of God's grace running throughout it. That's a, that's a theme that we see in Scripture, on every page of Scripture. Um, and so, therefore, it is of utmost importance for us to focus on. Uh, a, a passage like this, a millennium, is, is important. And, and while we may come to, it's possible for Christians to come to different perspectives and views on it, um, it's important for us to hold it as maybe of secondary or tertiary importance as opposed to something of primary importance like God's grace. Now, one of the things that Scripture does is it often uses numbers, especially time periods, as a, as a symbolic reference. And while it says a thousand years here, um, that may literally be true in terms of a thousand trips around the sun, but it is also very likely that that is a reference to a, an extended or long period of time where these things are true. And so there's two popular views uh, in, in Christian theology today, uh, one is this idea of, of a premillennial view. In other words, Christ will return uh, and establish this millennium kingdom at his second coming. Uh, this is a very, a, a very popular view, very, one that is very, um, I think, supported by this passage. Uh, and one that if you were to pick up a, a popular theology book or something about the end times would most likely be supported there. Um, Christ will come and establish his kingdom and, and for a thousand years or a very long period of time, God will reign through Christ in that way. Uh, I want to encourage us to think of an, uh, looking at this from another point of view, one that I think, uh, according to Scripture and Scripture as a whole, maybe is a much a more uh, supported view throughout Scripture, and that is the idea that, that this millennium, this, this reign of Christ, is actually a reference to our world today and, the, and Christ's reign in and through his people, the church. We give a lot of a talk in this church in particular about how Christ is the head of this church. He is our leader. He is the one whom we follow and, and submit to his authority. And it is, it is his presence in this world is worked out and established through his people in particular and through his church in general. And if you were to think about our the church age, thinking about Christ's influence in this world through thinking about Revelation 20 through that lens... It kind of lines up talking about this first resurrection, this new life that is being brought into this world and established here in this place. That sounds eerily familiar. Maybe eerily is not the right word. It sounds very familiar to the language in the New Testament about new life and new birth, the spiritual life that is given to his people. 
And in the New Testament, too, it talks about the importance of the church, of, of God's presence in this place, of, of us being an outpost, an ambassador, uh, as ambassadors for his kingdom in this place. And so I want us to think that, that Christ is reigning here and now through us in our lives in particular as Christians, but also through his church. And every, every church, every, every faithful group of believers is an outpost for that kingdom here in this world. We may also ask, what about, what about the enemy? It says that he is, will be restrained for this time period. Well, think about uh, Christ's victory on the cross as the establishment of, of his kingdom. That is, was the decisive victory. That is how this war with the enemy has been won. God accomplished victory, achieved victory through Christ on the cross. And while Satan's influence is still felt and still real in this world through sin and through, uh, through um, in a sense, his presence in this world, I believe his, his presence is restrained. His influence is restrained because his power is, in fact, limited. In fact, Scripture does give us a glimpse, albeit briefly, into what and what an unrestrained enemy looks like. And we see that in the pages of the book of Job. At the start of Job, it says that Satan goes before the Lord and, in a sense, asks permission to inflict harm on, on God's servant Job. And God gives him limitations. He says, first, he says, you may take away his possessions, take away his family, but don't harm him. And so Satan is then released, in a sense, is, is given permission to go and, and, and bring devastation and wreak havoc in Job's life. And then God even gives him permission to take away his health as long as he does not, as long as Job does not die. And Satan goes and, and does that and brings Job to the point of even wishing death upon himself, wishing that he had never been born. If we want to see what the devil uh, and his influence would look like unrestrained, that's a picture that Scripture gives us. Now, we do experience the impact of Satan's influence in this world, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but, but we also have to realize that, that by God's grace, his common grace in this world, I believe that, that his influence, the enemy's influence, is restrained in that sense. And one day Christ will return. We talked about that last week, the second coming of Christ, when he will establish his kingdom permanently and, and, and at that point issue judgment on all people those that are raised to life and those that are raised to eternal punishment. That is what we look forward to at the end of this age, at the coming of Christ. There's a, also, it's important for us to, to look at the, the uh, description of, of the enemy as it gives us in this chapter and throughout Scripture. Uh, we see in this passage there's three figures that are talked about, the beast, the dragon, and then this false prophet. In a sense, what... What John is doing here in Revelation is giving us a description of, of, of the enemy and, and his, his tactics and his deception. Um, we'll see here in just a moment that the enemy is a liar, right? The enemy deceives and fools us. And one of the things he does is he makes a mockery of God's truth. He makes a mockery of, of God's action and work in this world. And so one of the things that we talked about earlier this summer is we worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In a sense, what the enemy has done is, is made a mockery of that trinity in the form of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The dragon is a, a symbol, a representation of Satan himself. Satan is, uh, the word Satan is actually a, a, a taken from the Hebrew language and simply means adversary or enemy. And so this enemy, this, this adversary of God is represented as the dragon, this serpent of old, 
In Genesis, we see a picture of him as a snake coming to tempt and fool Adam and Eve. In Revelation 12, which we don't have time to read in, in, uh, in detail this morning, is a description of this dragon and this, this eternal conflict he is in with God and his people. And so the dragon represents the enemy, represents Satan. Revelation also talks about the beast. In Revelation 13, it also talks about, uh, it gives a description of this beast in more detail. And in a sense, the beast is, is an epitome, it's the embodiment of the person who, who truly carries out God's will in comparison and mockery of the Son. Right? Jesus is the perfect embodiment of God's character, is the perfect person who perfectly carried out God's will. And in a sense, the beast is the the opposite of that, the embodiment of those who, who oppose God's will, who are in rebellion to God. Scripture also refers to this person or these people as the Antichrist. And we see that particularly in John's letters to the churches, like in Second John verse 7. It says, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, have gone into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. See, Antichrist is a generic term in the New Testament to refer to those who are actively opposed to God's will. False teachers, false prophets who come and, and purposefully oppose the will of God in this place, in, in this world. And so the, the, the beast, the Antichrist, is the embodiment of that attitude, of those who deny God, who deny Jesus as God and oppose God's will in this world. And then there's also, third, the mention of the false prophet, this, um, the, the epitome of the, the false prophets that plagued Israel throughout history and, in a sense, is a mockery of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who testifies to God's truth, who confirms the truth of God's word in our hearts and as a witness to all that God has done in and through Jesus Christ. And so this false prophet then is a, in a sense, a mockery of, of the Holy Spirit's role in this world. The one who will, who will testify to the enemy and his actions and his work. And the one thing that Revelation 20 assures us of and reminds us of is these enemies of God have no path to victory. That our, that God's victory is assured through Christ. That, that though they oppose God and though they will assemble all the, the enemies of, of God in one place and in one time, God's victory is assured through Christ. As it, we sang already in a mighty fortress is our God, one word will fell him, will fell them. That's the hope we have in Christ and that's why we don't have to fear. Let's take some time now this morning and think about the enemy in detail, what we know about him in Scripture and how we must respond to that. First, I've already talked about is that this enemy, this devil, is a liar and a deceiver. And John, we see that in Genesis 3, right? The very first moment that Satan is on the scene, the very first picture we get of him is one of a deceiver and a liar, he questions the authority of God's word and says, does God really say those things? You see, if God is the source of all good things and the source of all truth, then the enemy must then be the one who distorts and twists the truth of God. In John chapter 8, verse 44, speaking against um, some religious leaders of his day, Jesus tells them, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth 
for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. You see, that's the enemy's greatest weapon is, is deception, of, is untruth, of taking God's word and twisting it in a way that, that uh, it was not meant to be twisted. And he uses those weapon, he uses that weapon in order to uh, divide us, to feel, to make us feel isolated, to distract us from God's purpose and will in this world, to create division in, uh, within families, within churches, within communities. See, the New Testament talks over and over again about the importance of unity in the church and the unity that comes by the Spirit. And that's a gift and a blessing from God. And it's only through Him that that's possible. And so what, why, so, so, so if that is God's will for us, then the enemy, of course, wants us to be divided. He wants us to be bickering. He wants us to be fighting over little things that don't ultimately matter. See, one of the greatest, one of the enemy's greatest weapons is to deceive us, to, to get us to believe in things that don't truly, aren't true or don't truly matter and use those to, to distract us, to divide and conquer and to isolate us from other believers. And so we must respond if, if the enemy is a liar and if he, uh, and if he, uh, oh, I almost forgot. He, he appears good too. Uh, it says that in second Corinthians 11, scripture reminds us that, that the enemy even appears as an angel of light, uh, to deceive, um, to deceive the world. He appears good and he even knows scripture in Matthew chapter four, as Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, what does the enemy do? He takes a quote from the Psalms. He takes scripture itself and twists it to try to tempt Jesus to, to test God. And so Satan himself knows scripture. He, he knows the truth, but, and he uses it to twist it to his own advantage. And so we must respond by being grounded in God's word. That's how Jesus responded to Satan's attacks. And that's how we must respond as well. You see, when a, in, a, in a bank, as, as, as tellers are being trained to spot counterfeits, they're not, they're not told to study counterfeits, right? To, to know and be able to detect a, a, a counterfeit $100 bill, bank tellers are trained to study the original, to study what is genuine, to study what is true, to know a genuine $100 bill front and back, so that if a counterfeit bill were to cross their counter, they'd be able to spot it. Not because they're so in tune with counterfeits, but because they know what is true and what is genuine to such a level, to such a degree that they're able to spot anything that varies or disagrees with it. In the same way, we must be grounded in Scripture. If we want to defend ourselves from the enemy's attacks, we must be grounded in Scripture ourselves. We must know what is true, what is good. We must know God's word inside and out. So as the enemy attacks us and deceives us and lies to us and distorts that truth, we can spot it for what it is and stand firm. In Ephesians chapter 6, it gives the description of the armor of God. And and the only offensive weapon that is listed in that entire chapter is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. God's word is our weapon against the enemy's schemes. And it's through his word that we will stand strong. Second, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. We see that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says that the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life and give it in abundance. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter writes that our enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he will devour. 
She, God, or excuse me, Satan, the enemy, seeks our destruction, seeks our end. If life itself is a gift from God, if spiritual life is a blessing from God, Satan would, would desire for us to not experience that, to be distracted, to not trust in the Lord, to even see our end so that we may lose our opportunities to repent and turn to the Lord. And so if he is the accuser of the brethren, then we must be willing and need, see the need of praying for each other. We need to have each other's backs spiritually and build one another up. In Hebrews chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 3, the author reminds us of the importance of encouraging one another. In Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13, He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I like that. Encourage one another as long as it's called today. Newsflash, every day is today, right? Every day is a day to encourage one another and build one another up. You see, we need each other. If one of Satan's schemes is to divide and conquer, is to isolate, ourselves, isolate us from other believers, the way we combat that is by, by joining together and encourage one another and building one another up. And a big part of that is prayer. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says to Peter that Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that you may stand strong. Think about that. Jesus praying for Peter to withstand Satan's schemes. We must pray for each other in the same way. Third, we also need to recognize that that the enemy's power is limited. He is not equal with God. And his uh, defeat has already been assured to us on the cross. And and Satan knows it. In James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, You believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Right? Satan knows he's lost the war. He's just trying to take as many people down with him as he can. But his, his power is limited. He is not all-knowing. He is not all-present. He is not all-powerful like God. He is not on the same footing. And so in order to, to, to the way for us to respond to that, the way for us to, to combat that is to trust and rely on the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives because he is all-powerful and he is able to help us in our time of need or temptation. James 4.7 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the promise we have in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He will provide a way out so that we can stand up underneath it. See, God knows the enemy's tactics too. And God has given us His Holy Spirit to help us to stand strong, to strengthen us, to, to see us through so that we may endure. But we need to rely on the Spirit's presence in our lives. We need to rely on Him because uh, John, God's Word in 1 John teaches us that He who is in us, meaning the Holy Spirit, is greater than He who is in the world, who is the enemy. So we need not fear. We need not be afraid because His power is limited. His time is short. And so we must rely on God's power in us. And finally, I've already led to this. He will succumb to God's divine judgment. Revelation 20 promises us that, that one day, against, even, even as Satan rebels and has one final push against God, uh, God will triumph in the end. 
Satan will succumb to God's judgment and be cast into the lake of, of burning fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. That is promised to us, and that is sure. And that leads us to that final topic of, of judgment and hell. It's important for us to pause and again reflect on God's grace. You see, as we, we too will stand before God in judgment one day, we will also be standing before that great white throne. It says that, that all people have, will, will be resurrected on that last day. We'll all stand before the Lord and have to give an account to how we have lived this life and how we have responded to God's grace. But for Christians, for those of us that are in Christ, we have nothing to fear. That is not a day to dread. That is not a day to, to, um, to fear, but as a day to, in one way, look forward to knowing that God's promise to us is true. Because no matter how good we are, no matter how bad we are, what matters is what Christ has done for us. You see, that's the gospel message. That's, that's what Carolyn put so beautifully during children's chat. It's not, about, it's, it's not about us trying to get to heaven. It's about what God has done for us in Christ to meet us and bring us with him. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 3. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. But whatever regains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and the participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul finally got it. He realized that no matter how good he was, it was still filthy rags compared to God's standard and God's glory in Christ. He also understood that no matter how bad he was, it didn't disqualify him from God's grace in Christ. What mattered was not having a righteousness of his own, but having a righteousness that comes from Christ. And so as we think about judgment, as we think about the end, as we think about the, the new heavens and the new earth and God establishing his kingdom here in this place, Christians have no need to fear. Those of us in Christ have nothing to worry about because it's not about us. It's about him and what he's done for us. But there's another side of that too. We also get to look forward and realize that one day the enemy will be defeated. Sin and the effects of sin and all the, all the impact of that we see in this world, including even death itself, will be destroyed. We'll be sentenced to an eternity in hell, separated from God. And we will no longer have to experience those things and experience the, the consequences of the result of them. But that's also a reason for us to push to share the good news and share that good hope with everyone we know and meet. You see, the, the judgment is nothing for us to fear, but for those outside of Christ, it is something to be concerned about. Right? Because the good news for those in Christ is that we have an eternity in heaven and God's presence to look forward to. And, and Tori is going to tell you all about that next week, about what it means to be in God's presence and, and enjoy his presence forever. And how that should impact our lives now. But one of the things that, that judgment and this idea of hell does for us is it encourages us 
to, to not hold anything back and share the good news with others. You see, if heaven is being in God's presence forever and ever and experiencing all the joy and the comfort and the peace that God's presence brings in a, in a, in a way that we can never do in this life, then hell is the opposite of that. Hell is the absence of joy and peace and love and comfort. Ultimately, hell is the absence of God himself. If every good and perfect gift comes from God, if God himself is love, then the separation from him means that we will, that the, the lack of or the, the absence of those things. Separation is a scary thing. Think about why death itself, why de- physical death impacts us the way it does. Even for a loved one that we know is in the presence of the Lord, it still hurts us, right? There's still a pain there because of separation. Because there is a disconnect there. Now think about the pain and the, the heart, the, the, the grief and the sorrow we experience, even knowing the joy that they may be experiencing, even knowing that in Christ we will be reunited once again with them. There's still a pain, a, a loss there. Now take that same pain, that same grief, and multiply that infinitely. Because in hell there is no God's presence. We are separated from God's presence forever. That loss we experience in a very acute way when a loved one dies is the kind of grief, the kind of pain that we'll experience eternally separated from God. And that is not something we want to wish on anyone. In fact, God desires that all people repent and be saved. I want to close with this encouragement to you this morning. Two passages from Peter's letters to the churches. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, it says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, that's God's desire, is that all people would know him and and be with him forever. And it's through Christ that he has made that possible. And so he has given us a mission. He's given us a task. If that is true, and if one day we will all stand before the Lord and and give an account of what we have done and how we've responded to God's grace, then he's given us a mission to share that good news, to share that hope, to share that gospel with the people we know. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If we believe these things to be true, if we believe that one day we'll all stand before the Lord, then we have a responsibility, we have a burden to go and share that good news with others. And so that's, that's what I want our takeaway to be. Two things this morning. One, in Christ we have nothing to fear. Rely on Him and His righteousness and His grace. Throw yourself at the mercy of God and, and repent and turn to Him. Find comfort in that. If that's something you have done before, find joy and find comfort and find peace in the assurance that God's Word brings. If you have not done that, today is the day. 
to repent and turn to the Lord. And secondly, if we've been given that great gift, if that is, if that's available to us and that's available to all who believe in Christ, take that good news and share it with everyone you know. Share that with your children, with your parents, with your siblings, with your neighbors, with your coworkers. Do it in a way that, 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 that just puts God's grace and his mercy at the center of it all. Because it's not about us, it's about him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word is true for us today as it has always been. Help us to rely on your word and the promises that are found there. Let us not succumb to fear. Let us not succumb to, uh, to lies and the, the, the weapons of the enemy. But help us stand firmly in your truth and your promises. And help us, Lord, to look forward to that day when we will stand in your presence, not in a righteousness of our own, but one that comes from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In closing, let's stand and let's sing of that hope we have in Christ. The words to in Christ alone are printed in your bulletin.
hear these words from Jude 24 and 25 to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. You may go in peace.